Thanks, Seth. Esther, Jen, for leading us this morning in our worship, for drawing our minds and hearts to focus on God, on who he is, on what he's done for us. And that takes us now, prepares us to hear the word of God taught. Colossians 3, 5 through 11 is where we're going to be this morning. So if you have a copy of the Bible, I'd invite you to take it out and turn with us to Colossians 3. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 11. Uh, my name is DJ. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity and uh, wanted to welcome you and, and uh, invite you to study with us this morning. I'm going to be leading us through our study of Colossians that's been going on now for several months. We took a break for Christmas, but we're working our way bit by bit through this book. Uh, we love the Bible and we value it here, and so we want to teach what it says. Uh, not our opinions, not our agendas, but we want to teach the Word and, and, and look at how God's Word applies to our lives today. Uh, if you didn't get a listening guide on your way in looks like this. This will help you to follow along. Uh, it's got our text in here. It has our points for the sermon. So if you didn't get one, you can just slip your hand up and Alex will come down and make sure you receive one. It's even got a little insert with the text this morning, which is called DJ has too many points in his sermon and left no room <laughs> otherwise. But I promise we'll be done by like two. It's no big deal. Uh, is that a joke? Is it not? Let's find out. So this morning, we're going to be continuing through Colossians. If you were here last week, you remember in, in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3, Paul called the Colossians and he called us to put our minds on things above, not on earthly things. We looked at the fact that this teaching, this moral instruction that we're going to be receiving in this chapter is grounded in the fact that we have died with Christ and we have risen with Christ. And so we've died to our old way of living. And we've been raised to live in new life, to be focused on the things above where Christ is. God has transformed us through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and so we should then live transformed lives. We should live lives that are different than they would be if Christ was absent from our lives. But some remnants of the old life can be hard to shake. And today, Paul is going to call us to be ruthless in putting these remnants of the old life away. There are some things that are not compatible with living as a follower of Jesus Christ. And he's going to hit these this morning. And in our exploration of this idea, we're going to take a page from the great, or the great philosopher and theologian, Kylo Ren. Now, if you've seen Star Wars The Last Jedi, or you've seen the marketing for Star Wars The Last Jedi, you've probably heard uh, Kylo give his kind of his motto that drives him over the course of that film. He says, let the past die. Kill it if you have to. It's the only way to become who you were born to be. And there's a fantastic amount of truth in that statement, and I'm going to suggest to you that that's the pattern we're going to follow in our study of our text this morning, now, with a couple of exceptions. Number one, when Kylo Ren kills the past, he's talking about killing people from his past. We generally frown upon that here, so don't want to actually kill any people. We're talking about killing our old way of life. Put it away. And then I'd suggest to you, he says, let the past die, kill it if you have to. Bad news, you're going to have to kill it. The remnants of the old self don't just go away on their own. We're going to have to put effort, to put passion, to put uh, a focus into, into killing off, giving no quarter to this old part of who we are. And in our text today, Paul's going to outline some of the pieces of our past that will need to be killed if we're going to progress in Christ-likeness. So we're going to look at this list, at these things that he tells us to get rid of, to put to death, to put away. We're going to look at why they're not compatible, why they don't fit with who we are when Jesus has remade us, and why Jesus' way that he calls us to is better 
than these things. So if you're there in the text, Colossians 3, read with me verses 5 through 11, and we will dive in this morning. Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. That's God's word for us this morning. Let's pray as we continue. Our God and good Father, this morning we ask that what we know not, you teach us. What we have not, you give us. What we are not, you make us. By the power of your word, through your Spirit's work in our lives, to the glory of Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. All right, so we're coming off the heels of the call to set our minds on things above, not earthly things. And in verse 5, we get a therefore. Because of this, because of this renewed focus, because of this transformation that we've experienced, therefore, we are to put to death that which is earthly within us. Strong and stark language. We're to put to death anything in us that is earthly in nature rather than godly. This text here that's, trans, uh, that's translated as put to death, this is basically a verb form of the Greek word nekros, which means death. We're talking here to deprive of life or energizing power. In other words, these things that are present in your life because of your old way of living, you need to make them powerless. You need to cut off their life source, make them impotent in your life rather than having the controlling effect that they did once and that they might still have today. Put to death, therefore, that which is earthly within you. And then he's going to go on and he's going to give us two lists of things that we need to put to death. Uh, a couple things to note is before we get into the details of these lists, number one, they're not exhaustive. Paul is not going to be giving us absolutely everything that was part of the old life that we need to put away. This is not every single sin on the books. So if you have a favorite and it's not mentioned here, that doesn't mean, oh good, I get to keep that one. This isn't meant to be an exhaustive list. But secondly, it's also not a random list. It's not as if Paul is just throwing out the first 12 sins that popped into his head and these are what you need to get rid of. This is targeted. And he's focusing on things that would have been a, a big part of the culture that these people lived in. These are some of the sins that for the Colossian believers were, were hanging on tight, were tough to strip away. And I'm going to suggest to you that there's a lot of similarity between the culture that they inhabited and the culture that we inhabit today. So I think this list has particular importance and relevance to us today. So it's not an exhaustive list. It's not a random list. It's a, common, it's a listing of the common remnant, remnants of the Colossians' former pagan lives that they needed to pay particular attention to. 
And to kind of help us in breaking, in breaking these two lists up, uh, I've categorized them as wrongful passions and wrongful actions. Now, that's not really a clean dividing line, but I wanted to avoid having 13 subpoints under one point in the sermon, and that's the easiest way that I found to break them up. So full disclosure, uh, that's how it's going to work this morning. But our first list in verses 5 through 7, we need to look at how we can kill wrongful passions. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he gives a list of these desires that consume and enslave us, some things that can take us to some very dark places. And the first thing that he mentions in verse 5 is sexual immorality. Now, this is no accident, like I said. Given the state of the culture of the Greco-Roman world, Paul lands with this one first. He leads with this punch. And I would suggest to you that it's appropriate that this gets addressed first in our culture as well, because we live in a very sexually confused culture and in a very sexually destructive culture. The Greek word that we translate here as sexual immorality is pornea, from where we get our word pornography. And essentially, this is a catch-all term for any sexual activity that is outside of the bounds that God has prescribed. And so you can fit a whole umbrella of actions under this term. Any, any sexual activity outside of what God has said to do, we are to put it to death, to put it away. And this was a radical change in the world of the Colossians, in the Greco-Roman world. In fact, pastor and author Kent Hughes has suggested that chastity was the one completely new virtue that Christianity brought into the world. That what was being offered by the church in the early days was so foreign to the world in which it came into. This idea of sexual virtue, of chastity. Uh, Tom, in his scripture reading this morning, gave us a picture from Paul's letter to the Romans of what it looks like when a culture rejects God, worships the creature rather than the creator, and turns its own way. And we end up going down and down into, uh, into a world where... Sexual passions are what define, they're what control, and they lead us into a place of judgment, of God's uh, wrath poured out upon us because of our inability to understand what he has made and how we're to live in the world that he's made. And so if we're going to say that what Paul's warning us against here with sexual immorality is anything outside the bounds, we have to ask, what are the bounds? What are the, the bounds that God has, has prescribed for us? Well, where does sexuality come from? It was created. We go back to Genesis chapter 1. God created Adam and Eve, male and female, and for each other. He created it, and so he defines it. God, as creator, has the right to define what is good and perfect and acceptable for his creation. And he created sexuality for his glory. He created it for our good. And he told us that it is to be enjoyed within the bounds of a lifelong covenanted commitment between a man and a woman. A lifelong covenanted commitment that we call marriage between a man and a woman. And I would suggest to you this morning that anything outside of that is pornea, is sexual immorality, is what Paul is saying, put to death. And so this covers uh, premarital sex, this covers adultery, this covers homosexual practice, this covers uh, pornography and all the associated things that go with it. Paul says, sexual immorality, any of it that is in you, put it to death, do away with it. And in their culture, and I would suggest in ours, sexual immorality was actually openly tolerated. Especially in, if you look at some of the pagan worship practices that, that went on in the Colossian world, in the Greco-Roman world, it was part and parcel of their worship. Not only was it tolerated, but in many cases it was actually celebrated. 
that it, this thing that was destructive to them, their culture said, no, this is a good. This is what we need to be doing. This is what we need to be celebrating. In our culture, you can see we're walking down that very same road, that we celebrate as virtue that which God has defined as vice. Paul says, do not go along with the world in this way. Put sexual immorality to death. Kill it. Give it no quarter. Deprive it of its power. And he continues to elaborate through the rest of this list that is very much connected to that first prohibition. A lot of these terms in this first list are going to be broad moral terms, but they're going to have a a strong context of Paul telling us, flee from sexual sin, sexual immorality. The second word he gives us is impurity, put to death impurity. He calls us to kill impurity within ourselves. The word literally means uncleanness. And this was the same word that was used to refer to the type of ritual uncleanness that the Old Testament law refers to. So if, you, if you're familiar with the Old Testament and some of the teachings of the law, there was a ceremonial cleanliness that the people of Israel had to observe. And so, for instance, if one touched a dead body, one was ceremonially unclean and could not participate in certain, way, certain parts of temple worship until that uncleanliness was rectified, this pattern that God showed to his people in the law of Moses. This word here has that same meaning, this notion of uncleanliness. It is to be polluted by something that does not belong. To be polluted by something that does not belong. Paul says, put away any impurity in your life. The majority of the time that the word is used in the New Testament, it is in close context with sexual immorality, and that's certainly the case here. But it does encompass encompass more than that, because many bad actions flow from an impure heart. Right? Jesus said that over, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And what Paul is getting at here is get rid of anything in the heart that does not belong that will then overflow into, into uh, sinful actions, whether in the sexual realm, whether in the relational realm, whatever realm it is, get rid of anything that does not belong on a heart level. The overarching point, we must kill off anything that doesn't belong in our hearts, anything that is earthly and worldly. But There is also the focus we need to have because of the close association with sexual immorality here. The emphasis is on sexual impurity. Not even an impure thought can be allowed to linger. The actions associated with sexual immorality that Paul is warning them against don't just start as actions. They start in the heart. They start with desires, with passions, with lust. Paul says, nip it in the bud. Kill it off when it is still in the heart. Don't let anything remain Put it to death. Deprive it of its power so that it does not metastasize, if you want to think of it like a cancer, through your life and work its way out in wrong actions. Put to death impurity. Next, we are told to put to death passion. Now, this one is a little bit of an oddball because the word passion here, this is a morally neutral word. It is in English, right? When we say passion, you can have good passions. You can have bad passions. You can be passionate about basketball, which is all well and good, and you can be passionate about things you ought not to be passionate about. And the Greek word that this is translated from is is pathos. It's the same. It is a morally neutral word. But when it's used negatively in the New Testament, and it is used positively in, in other areas, but when it's used negatively, the word indicates consuming sexual passions and lusts that carry us away to do things that our brains will later struggle to explain. 
So it's no accident that we see this coming on the heels of sexual immorality, of impurity, passion. So this is an idea of killing off these lusts that drive us. We're going to talk a lot about throughout these, these passages, what is it that is supposed to drive us in our living? And we touched on that last week, that our minds are to be focused on things above. We're to be led by the Spirit by the Spirit working through the Word of God to teach us what we are to do. And Paul is saying here, do not be led around by your passions. I want you to think, if you've ever heard someone talk who has committed adultery, and a lot of times you'll hear them talk back on what it was that led them down that road, and they'll talk about how it made perfect sense at the time. It seemed good. It seemed appealing. It seemed like it made sense, like it was desirable, and they were led away by that, and it was only after they had blown everything up that they realized it's empty. There's nothing there. They were led by passions that blinded them to the reality, that blinded them to the truth. That's the idea that Paul's getting at here. Kill off these lustful passions that lead you around and that lead you to a dark place. Be led by the Spirit instead. Part of setting our minds on things above, like we talked about last week, is setting them off of that which would drag them back down into the mud that God has saved us from, that he's lifted us up out from, that he's set us on the rock to avoid. Put to death sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire is our next word. And once again, we have a morally neutral word, desire. Desires can be good, desires can be bad, but modified here by the word evil. So put to death evil desires that, is, that are in you. This is any desire for sin that we find within ourselves. Any craving for that which God has called us away from. And this is a good one to, to stop and focus on because this is a concept that our culture gets very confused on very easily. You have the notion that if it's natural, if you have desires within you that are natural and that are there, if you're, if you're born with a particular bent towards something, if it's natural, it's good, right? If it's a natural desire, you should follow it and you should seek fulfillment in that. But we know, we as the church know, and really we as the world know that there are desires within us that need to be put away. That even though they might be naturally there, we should not act upon them. Paul says here, put away evil desire, put it to death. And in our world today, on the one hand, they might say, no, follow your desires, follow your heart. That's the Disney way, right? Follow your desires, pursue whatever whatever it is you desire. But if you watch the news this week, you've seen a Olympic gymnastic doctor named Larry Nassar that we would say, well, you shouldn't have followed his desires. His desires wrought destruction on the lives of many, many young girls and is continuing to to bear that destruction out in our broader culture today. He should not have followed his desires. See, we know this. Even on a cultural level, we know that there are things within us because we are fallen creatures, because we're marred by sin. We have desires within us that don't need to be searched out, that don't need to be fulfilled, but they need to be put to death. When you find in yourself a desire that runs contrary to what the Bible tells you to pursue, choke out the rebel desire and pursue the things of God instead. Get rid of sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. And then this list of rogue passions ends with its logical culmination, covetousness, which Paul equates with idolatry. Covetousness, which is idolatry at the end of verse 5 there. So why is covetousness idolatry? Why does Paul make that connection for us here? We'll stop and think about it. What does it mean to covet? 
To covet is to desire something that is not ours with such a power that we will disobey God's word in order to get it. When you covet something, it is locking your desire onto an object, whether it's a person, whether it's a thing, whether it's a status, whether it's whatever it is. When we covet, we lock our desire onto something that does not belong to us, and we will do whatever it takes to get there. And Paul says, put that to death. Coveting supplants God on the throne and replaces him with whatever the object of our desire is. That's why Paul says it's the equivalent of idolatry. And while Paul makes the connection between idolatry and covetousness here, idolatry is actually the root of all the passions we've just talked about. Of all these desires, when we are consumed by a desire for something and we chase after it, we pursue it, we follow our passions, our evil desires, we let the impurity in our hearts blossom into sexual immorality. When we follow these things, it's because we see a desire for something and we say, I want that more than I want God. I believe those promises of joy, of satisfaction, of fulfillment, more than I believe God's promises that that joy and satisfaction should be found in him. We always do what we think will bring us the most joy. There's a great quote from the philosopher Blaise Pascal that kind of brings this out. I'm not going to give you the whole quote, but what he basically says is people always do what they want to do. Never in human history does the will take a step except to that end. You will do what you want to do. He said, even people who kill themselves are doing what they think will bring them the most satisfaction in that moment. They're looking for relief from whatever it is that's troubling them in this world. We follow our desires. And so what we find is when we do that, when we chase what will bring us the most joy, it shows where we believe joy is to be found. Our actions betray our theology. They betray our affections. And Paul says here, there is no real joy to be found in these things. Verse 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Everything he just listed in verse 5 promises fulfillment. It promises satisfaction. It promises pleasure. It promises a good return on your investment. Paul says it's bankrupt. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming into the world. Think back to what Tom read us this morning through Romans 1, this passage that just takes us down deeper and deeper and deeper into despair, into enmity with God. Christ came to deliver us from that. Why, as those who have our minds set on things above, would we run back to it? Paul says, this is the way you used to walk. This is who you used to be, verse 7. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them. But in verse 8, he's going to remind us, but not anymore. Put it away. Kill the past. Do not make peace with these things in your heart. They will never bring you what they promise to bring you. Kill your wrongful passions. That's our first list. But then the second list begins in verse 8. Kill your wrongful actions. He starts into another list here telling us of more things that we need to put away. The term here in verse 8, but now you must put them all away. This verb for put away means cast off, lay aside, put down. Uh, think about when you watch an Olympic athlete. Uh, we're going to watch the Winter Olympics here in the next few weeks. Uh, and it's 
it happens, it's more clear to see in the Summer Olympics, but it's some, somewhat in the Winter Olympics too. Well, pay attention to what athletes wear when they're competing. Everything about what they wear is designed to hinder them in as little way as possible. So in the Summer Olympics, when you guys watch track and field, they're wearing these, these tight track suits. When you watch the swimmers, they, they spend so much money, these companies do, to make a swimsuit that is perfectly aerodynamic, that buys them that extra hundredth of a second as they're going through the pool. And what Paul is saying here is we need to cast off, lay aside, put down anything that will hinder us in following after Christ. It would not make any sense for a track star to wear a big puffy jacket as he's running the race. He'd want to take it off, cast it aside, put it down. The same goes for us in our pursuit of God and our pursuit of spiritual health and holiness. These things we need to put to death. We need to cast them off. We need to put them down. And the application is the same as the first list. Get rid of these things from your life. Don't tolerate their presence. They don't fit. They're not compatible with who you are now in Christ and where you want to be. So the first thing that we have to put off is anger. And if you look at the first two things on the list, they're actually very similar and are closely related. But as we focus on anger, I want you to think of the slow building, directed, and pointed variety of anger that we often target at other people. This is premeditated anger. This is that simmering anger that you allowed to build in you, that you target at somebody who has wronged you in some way, and you focus and seethe against that person. Now, we might object right here off the bat, well, God gets angry, right? Isn't, isn't it sometimes okay for us to get angry? Isn't anger a, a good thing at times? Isn't there a such thing as righteous anger? And the answer is yes. Yes, there are good things, appropriate things to get angry about. When we see sin in our lives and the lives of others, when we see injustice and suffering, anger can be a very appropriate thing. But it's also a dangerous thing. Because of our sinfulness, what starts as anger for a good and righteous reason can quickly balloon into something that is dark and ugly. I want you to listen to what Paul said to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 4, 26 through 27. He gave them this advice. He said, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now we see two realities in that verse. First, it is possible to be angry and not sin, right? Be angry and do not sin. That's exactly what he tells them to do. But the second reality is that that is hard enough that we're advised not to try it for very long. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. We're given a timer. Be angry and do not sin. And to help you in that, don't live in your anger. Don't pitch a tent there and dwell. Don't let the sun go down on it. Resolve it quickly by the end of the day because it can damage you. James, in James 1.20, says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So anger can be a good and appropriate and right thing. But I would warn you, it is a dangerous thing. Do not hang out there for long. Let me ask you a question. Is it possible to survive in a nuclear reactor? Yes. Yes, it is. I mean, they have to do maintenance on nuclear reactors. They have to, to make sure that they are kept up and working properly. And so guys enter the reactor in order to do maintenance there. It's possible to survive. But you don't want to go in there without being specially equipped for the task. And you don't want to stay very long. 
They're going to go in in a suit that is meant to to give them protection, to shield them from the radiation that is there. And they're going to go in, they're going to do the job, and they're going to get out. Approach anger the same way. It's possible and sometimes necessary to go there. But don't do so without being specially equipped. Don't do so without allowing God's word to shape your mind, to remind you constantly how you need to process that anger, where you need to direct it. And don't stay there for long. Don't make a home there because the longer that you stay, the better the chance that that anger is going to balloon into something that doesn't need to be there. And so Paul says, put it away. Put your anger away. Don't let it drive you to actions that you will later regret. And if anger indicates the slow burn focus side of things, the next thing on the list, wrath, is the passionate outburst that it creates. Put away anger and put away wrath. This word indicates impulsive anger, the kind that will carry you off and leave you saying and doing things that will leave you ashamed and sorrowful just minutes later. This is, this is hulking out. Right, it reminded me of, uh, to use another illustration, from, from the Lord of the Rings. If you've seen the first Lord of the Rings film where Boromir uh, tries to take the ring from Frodo at the end and he, he turns into this, uh, this almost another person and he, he tackles him and he's attacking this one who's been his friend. And then when, when he snaps out of it a second later, his first words are, what have I done? That's the kind of wrath that we're talking about here. The wrath that consumes you, it drives you, you lash out, you say things, you do things. And then moments later you think, oh my goodness, what have I done? What have I allowed this to turn me into? And as we saw earlier, we're not to be people who are led by our passions. We're not to be led around on a string by our emotions. We're not to do things and say things to others that are prompted by our base feelings of anger and rage. We're to be led by the Spirit. We're to be led by God's Word. We're to do only that which builds others up. And we cannot do that without being led by the Spirit. Again, do you you see, we, we, we talked about the Star Wars quote at the beginning, let the past die, kill it if you have to. Are you starting to see why we have to kill it? Well, you can't just live with these things and hope that they'll go away on their own because some of us have been walking the Christian life for years and years and years, some of us for shorter lengths of time, some of us for longer, but all of us could testify to the fact that these things don't just go away, that whether you've been following Christ for five months or 50 years, there are things that you find within yourself that you have to work to put to death because that old self is still there, is still strong. God grants us victory day by day, but we have to put these things to death. Put off anger, put off wrath, and then put off malice. Malice is the calculated scheming of how to bring harm to others. Right? You have somebody who is an enemy, you wish bad things would happen to them, and then you start to scheme to figure out how you can bring those bad things about. Malice is hatred. It starts in the heart, and then it seeps its way into our actions, sometimes in subtle ways, sometimes in very dramatic ways. Like, think about the story of Daniel, Daniel in the lion's den. If you remember that story, how did Daniel end up in the lion's den? Well, Daniel had enemies. He had people in the kingdom who didn't like him, who hated him for his uh, love of God and his devotion to God and his word. And so they they hated this guy, and they wanted to catch him in something that would get him thrown in, in the lion's den, that would get him jailed, executed. But the problem was that they couldn't catch him in anything, right? There was no dirt to dig up on Daniel. 
And this made him even more mad, right? We've got to get rid of this guy, but we can't find anything. So what do they do? Well, what if we suggested a law to the king that Daniel will inevitably break? And so they, they come up with this law. Oh, king, great and mighty king, we want to have a law where everybody only is allowed to pray to you because you are great, Mr. King. And the king thinks, yeah, that's a pretty good idea. I like that law. Pray to me. And so they get him to sign the law. And by the way, it's a law in their society that every law that is signed by a king is irreversible. And so the king is going to be stuck with this one. And they pass the law. And does Daniel change his prayer life? No. He, he prays. And in fact, he opens his window and makes sure that everyone sees that he is praying in defiance to the king. He doesn't change his routine at all. He looks toward Jerusalem. I mean, he could have shut the window, gone in the closet, and, and gone underground, but he doesn't. And they catch him, and the king has this, oh, no. No, we, we just need to throw the law. Well, you, Mr. King, it's the law of the land that once you sign something, it can't be undone. So they hatch this malice that then devises a scheme that traps Daniel. This is what we're told to do away from, this kind of hatred that plots the downfall and the demise of our enemies. If you think of the story of Esther, you, you can see this as well in the life of Haman. Haman is another one who, who, you, who is filled with malice and plots the demise of Mordecai, his enemy. Let those two, let, let Haman and let the, the enemies of Daniel be a model for what not to do. We are to love our enemies. It's what Jesus says to us in the Sermon on the Mount. We're to love our enemies. We're to pray for those who persecute us. We're to repay evil with good. A malice that wishes harm to others has no place in the life of a Christian. But why are we to love our enemies? This, this is where it really starts to, to hit with some force. Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, why does Jesus tell us we're to love our enemies? He says, so that you may be like your Father who is in heaven, right? He sends rain on the just, and he sends rain on the unjust. So if you're going to be like God, you have to love your enemies. While we were enemies of God, was God planning our demise? Was he planning our downfall? No, while we were enemies of God in open and vile rebellion against him, he was plotting our redemption. He was laying the seeds that would become the tree on which Christ was crucified for us. No sooner had Adam and Eve broken the world in the garden than we get a promise that the heel of the woman will crush the head of the snake. We are introduced to Abraham who will bless all the nations of the earth through his offspring, namely Jesus. We are introduced to David, this model king and redeemer that will come to his people. We were introduced to Moses, the lawgiver. We are introduced to Isaiah and the, prophet, the promise of a suffering servant who would come while we were rebelling openly and repeatedly against God. God was hatching a plan to save us, not to destroy us. Put away your malice. Be like God. Don't plot the demise of the enemies, but rather they're good. Lie awake at night and think about how you can do good to those whom you wish to do good to the least. And watch that transform your way of thinking. Watch it transform your heart. Put away malice. Put away slander. Slander is concept that's probably pretty easy for us to get. Slander is saying false things about someone else, vilifying them, railing against them. 
But it's rather interesting if we look at the word here, because in the Greek, the word that we translate as slander is the word blasphemia, which is where we get the word blaspheme from. So the term in Greek could mean vilification against God, very specifically, or it could mean vilification of anyone in general. But let's think about that word blaspheme and use it kind of as a good uh, model to understand what we're supposed to do here. When someone blasphemes, they attribute something to God that is false, demeaning, or untrue, or all of the above. Do you ever do that to others? Do you say things about others that are false, untrue, demeaning? You see, a Christian shouldn't blaspheme God, right? I mean, that's like no-brainer Christianity 101. We don't want to say bad things about the God whom we worship and we love. But just as a Christian shouldn't blaspheme God, we also shouldn't slander people made in the image of God. We shouldn't do what we know we ought not to do to God to his creatures made in his image. In some cases, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Put away slander. Put away the tearing down of others and build others up with what we have to say. Next, Paul tells them to put away obscene talk, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. So this is speech not befitting someone whose mind has been set on things above. Again, remember back to last week, all of this is under that umbrella of Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. That's going to change the way you talk. It's going to change your vocabulary. It's going to change the way that you communicate with other people. The Greek term being translated here only occurs this one time in the New Testament, and it's a compound word literally meaning shameful words. It's the word for shameful and the word for words put together and made into one word. Don't let any shameful words come out of your mouth. Now, the temptation for us is to say, okay, so give me the dictionary list of words that I'm not allowed to use. I won't say those words, and then we'll move on. I think that's the way we usually conceive of shameful words, obscene talk, profanity. But that doesn't really work, right? Because the Bible doesn't give us a list of those words for one. So if we're going to have a list of words, we've got to come up with it. And who gets to do that? Is there like a word police that's in charge? And depending on who gets to come up with a list of words is going to determine what the list of words looks like. So we know that Paul's not getting at that here. In fact, Paul uses sharp and pointed and even a little crude language himself in the pages of the Bible. But he does it not flippantly to make a point. Before you use a word, ask yourself why you're using it. Now this requires you to think on your feet quite a bit, but that's part and parcel of, of growing in holiness. Before you use a word, ask yourself why you're using it. Will it build up? Will it achieve a good purpose? Will it leave someone better off for having heard it? If someone has a conversation with you, are they going to come out of that conversation with their minds pointed more towards Jesus or less? What does your language say about your heart? Are we building up with our words? Ephesians 4.29, Paul tells the Ephesians, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Only that which is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, the occasions are different sometimes. Paul uses very soft and gracious language in Scripture many times. 
There's other times where, where people have their heads stuck somewhere that they don't need to be, where Paul uses some very sharp language to say, hey, knock it off. Sometimes sharp language can be done to build up in love. But the point is this, Paul's pattern for speech is purposeful. It's under the umbrella of, will this build up the person to whom I am speaking? And if we're using coarse language in a way that's flippant, in a way that's purposeless, it it betrays a heart that is not as focused on the things of God as it should be. And I would say that we've got a chance to really stand out on this issue because we live in a culture where coarse language is used commonly, even in professional settings. Like, I, I'm shocked how many meetings I'll sit in sometime. I sit in meetings even with vendors who are trying to sell my company products and listen to the, the language that they'll use in their sales pitch in a very casual and flippant way. And I've heard the same thing in other meetings. This is the way our culture talks. We could, we could go on for why they talk that way, but this is pretty common to hear coarse language thrown around in a flippant way without purpose. And so if you choose your words carefully, if you speak under the lens of, is this going to build up the person that I'm talking to, you're going to be very different than the people around you. And they're going to take notice. It's going to happen. And hopefully that gives you opportunity to talk about why you talk the way you do. To talk about why your speech just seems different in its purpose than theirs does. Put away obscene talk from your mouth. And then finally, do not lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Put away lies. And Paul puts this one apart in a separate thought. Do not lie to one another. Don't deceive one another. Seeing that you've put off the old self. Lies are part of the old way of doing things, not the new way. Our not lying to one another is specifically linked to the fact that we've exchanged the old self for a new self. And that new self, in verse 10, is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We're seeing what the pattern of the old self looks like. We're told here that the pattern of the new self is it's being made to look more like God. And God does not lie. Put away lies from your mouth. Don't deceive others. God doesn't deceive us. The scriptures are full of his promises, and every single one is true. We never have to worry when God says something to us. Is he trying to like slip something by me here? Is he trying to paint a picture that's not quite true? And that's going to be the temptation. Satan's going to come just like he did in the garden and say, you know, did God, did God really say, really? You're not going to surely die? He's just exaggerating. God never lies. He is always true. He's always dependable. And so if we're going to put on a new self that is being made to look more like God, then we need to put on a new self that tells the truth, that doesn't lie, that doesn't deceive in order to get what we want. Put away lies. Because you've put off the old self with its practices. And you've put on the new self. Look, we've looked at two lists of things to put away. Put away wrongful passions. Put away wrongful actions. And here in 10, we're told it's not just about putting those things away. You're putting those away because you're putting something else on. Put on your new self. And we're going to get into this even more next week. But this is vital that we understand. We're not, it's not just about don't do bad things. So often, Christianity, can, can, we can get it in our mind that that's what it is. It's just stop doing wrong stuff. Don't do any more bad things. No, we're putting off the old because we're putting on the new. And the new is Jesus. 
the change that, that God makes in us, when he transforms us, that is why we put off all these things. We're being made to look more like Jesus, and all of these things are not compatible with looking more like Christ. We're being renewed in knowledge after the image of our creator. And it's, I want to zero in on this idea of being renewed, because this is really common language. Paul uses this language a lot when he talks about sanctification. So a couple things. Number one, renewal is a process. Right? Paul doesn't say we were renewed. He doesn't say we will be renewed. He says we are being renewed. This is something that is an ongoing action in the life of the Christian. We are being renewed to look more like the image of our creator. Listen to how he says it in a couple other spots. 2 Corinthians 4.16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self, our body is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Day by day. This is a daily process by which God makes us look less like us and more like Jesus. We're being renewed. Romans 12.2. Do not be conformed to this world. Right? Those first two lists, that's being conformed to the world. The world does all these things. Don't be conformed to that pattern. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How are we transformed? By our minds being made new, by thinking less like me and more like Jesus. How do I know how Jesus thinks? I find out what he's told me in his word. What has he revealed to me about himself? The goal of Christian living, let me say this as flatly as I can, the goal of Christian living is not to stop doing bad things and start doing good things. The goal of Christian living is to become like Jesus. The goal of Christian living is to become like Jesus. Now, that is no less than changing our behavior, but it is much, much more. You can't look like Jesus. You can't become like Jesus without putting off, without putting on, without putting things to death. Change in our actions is part and parcel of becoming more like Christ, but it is more than that. It is a change of attitude. It is a change of desire. It is a change of value. It is a change of focus, as we saw last week. We're being transformed because God has transformed us by the power of the gospel. He's exchanged our dead hearts of stone and he's given us a heart of flesh in its place when we repent of our sins and we believe in Jesus. And so then we are being transformed to put off the old and to put on the new. Don't settle for less than Christ-likeness in your spiritual walk. Don't be okay with just getting halfway to a point where, you know what, I look pretty presentable to the world. I'm better than most of the people that I hang out with. And I'm good enough that nobody in the church really pries too hard, right? Like, I've gotten rid of all the big sins that are going to make people like, eee. And I have some sins left, but nobody's going to call me on it because, you know, it's common stuff. Don't settle for that. Pursue Christ. That's the goal. That's the final destination. He is making us into his image because we will be a new people, a transformed people that will dwell with him forever. Pursue Christ-likeness relentlessly. And you're going to find, as we're being made like Christ, this change brings with it effects on how we relate to one another as well. That's where this passage goes. It's not really the way we would expect the passage to go. Put off 
Put off the old self, kill all these things of the old man, put on the new self, being renewed in knowledge. And then in verse 11, we're told, because we're creating a new people. And here's what it looks like. Paul says, here, here being the family where we're being renewed by Jesus, the church, God's people, here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. He's saying the divisions that separate people are shattered when we come to Christ, when we join his family. Pastor Kent Hughes points out that in the examples that Paul gives, we're told that the gospel breaks down racial barriers. There's no Greek and Jew. It breaks down religious barriers. There's no circumcised and uncircumcised. It breaks down cultural barriers. There's no barbarian or Scythian. And it breaks down social barriers. There's no slave and free. Some of the most drastic and hardwired divisions in ancient society, Paul says, you come in to be made more like Jesus, you join his family, they're gone. They don't matter anymore. In the new people of God that he's making for himself through Christ, all people from every tribe, excuse me, tongue, and nation are present. This is a radical vision for the people of God. This is a radical vision if you're on the political right, This is a radical vision if you're on the political left. Because, look, we live in a world where where racial problems are a big deal right now. Where we realize that there is is a lot of baggage that, that we bring to each other in race relations. There are a lot of current troubles that we have to figure out how to deal with. And everybody's got an idea. And I would suggest to you that the right misses it and the left misses it. There is only one way to achieve what God wants for us. You see, on the right, people tend to want a homogenous, assimilated people. Everybody's welcome to come, but we'd rather you end up looking more or less like me. Don't make me change my way of thinking. Don't rock my boat. Come in, respect our comforts, and just kind of blend in. That's the kind of of racial unity that the right tends to want to promote. And I'm generalizing here, but I think the generalization holds up. The left tends to want a culture where diversity is the end in and of itself. Everybody's welcome. We want Jews and Greeks and barbarians and Scythians, slave-free. Everybody gets a seat at the table, but stay in your seat because your seat is the most important thing about you, your background, your heritage. That's what defines you. And so the left wants to play into defining people on who they are and where they're from, and it creates a lot of of envy and animosity as groups try to, to, to hold fast to what we are. The gospel gives a better way. The gospel tells us that Jesus is inviting everyone to come into his new family. Everyone is welcome. No group is left out. Barbarians, Scythians, slave, free, Jew, Greek, circumcised, uncircumcised, everybody comes to the table. But Jesus is not leaving anyone the way they were when they showed up to the table. All of us must change. All of us must kill the past. And we must find our identity, not in me, not in my tribe, but in Jesus. Why is there not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free? Because Christ is all and in all. We lose those divisions when we bring ourselves under the rule of King Jesus, when we fix our mind on that which is above. Go back to last week's sermon. Think back to what we talked about, our hope being hidden with Christ in God. If our hope is hidden with Christ in God, then it doesn't matter how this world sees me. It doesn't matter how this world defines me. It doesn't matter how this world groups me as we are all made to be like Jesus, 
we have a unity that trumps any earthly division. You cannot manufacture it apart from Christ. How do we fix racial problems? How do we promote racial reconciliation? Through repentance of my sin and faith in Jesus. And as God transforms me to look like him and he transforms you to look like him, guess what? We're both not going to look like us. We're going to look like him. That is what we need. That is the better way that Christ holds out. But then this brings up the question, do we want that kind of unity? Do you want that kind of unity? Then what do you need to do? You need to kill the past. The only way that we arrive in a world where there's no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, is when we put to death that which is earthly in us. When we put off, cast aside that which used to characterize us. And we realize that Christ is all. He's in all. He's over all. And I can't be defined apart from who he is. So questions to ask ourselves. Number one, have you been transformed by Jesus? Are you still, like we talked about last week, on a road to self-fulfillment? I I want a faith that just makes me a little bit better version of me. Or have you seen Christ who came, as we talked in the creed this morning, for us and for our salvation? He entered into this world. He lived the perfect life that I have screwed up time and time again. He died for me on the cross. And he was raised from the dead, victory and power over the grave. And not just over the grave, over my grave, over my sin that would put me in my grave. All these things that we're told to put to death, therefore, Jesus has conquered. He came and he put off sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and lies. They did not characterize Jesus at all. He triumphed over them and then he suffered my penalty for them. And so if we want to do these things, gosh, we, you can't hear this sermon as another don't, 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 don't. The only way we're going to don't is if we know Jesus and if we have embraced and been transformed by him. Have you been transformed by him this morning? Or are you trying to fight this battle on your own? If you do know Christ, are you killing your past? Are you putting it to death? Or are you waiting for it to just die off on its own? Are you content to leave it in your guest room and you know, once every couple of weeks we'll go check, yeah, you doing in there, all right? Kill the past. And let's be a place here and a people in Trinity Church who help one another kill the past. That's why we gather in community groups to talk about how does this affect my life? Don't try to hide in the corner and just, and just deal with it on your own. And then maybe once you get rid of all the big ones, wherever you can kind of blend in, then I'll come in and, and, and be a part of the community. No, bring your failings, bring your shame, bring your suffering, and let's walk together. Let's pursue Christ together in love and unity. Which item on the list from today do you need to get ruthless with? Do you need to show no quarter? Do you need to buckle down? How do you do that? Well, see if this is helpful. Which item on that list has God given you particular and substantial victory over? Look at those, what is it, 12 or 13 things that we talked about today. 
Which one more than anything else can you say, I used to be that way, but I'm really not anymore. God's transformed me in the area of impurity. God's transformed me in the area of slander, of malice. Pick one. Pick the one where you've made the most progress and transformation by God's grace and ask yourself, how did God bring me from A to B? What were the things that were the most helpful in that journey? Was it someone to talk to? Someone to be an example for me? A particular part of the scripture? A particular discipline in my life? What was it that gave me victory in that area? And how can I apply that same principle to this problem zone? How can I find that pattern helping me in this area that I need to be ruthless with? And then are you still trying to find your identity in your old self? Or are you putting on the new? Can you say Christ is all? All I have is Christ. I thought that'd be a great song to sing today, but I didn't think about it till like last night, so it was a little late for Seth. So he's off the hook. But have you reached that point where you can say Christ is all? And he's in all. And he's over all. And he's through all. And if you've grasped that identity, has it changed the way you relate to your fellow believers? Has it changed the way you relate to other people, period? How does it need to more? How do you need to to really live as if there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free? How do you need to have your identity shape your relationships? Kill the past. Kill the past. That's our mission today. Our pasts all look different. If we said which one of these is our problem area, we could, we could probably name just about every one of them if we went around the room. Everybody's past is different. Everybody has that area of sin that holds on a little bit tighter in their life. Kill it. Don't waste any more time just being satisfied with being good enough to blend in. You're to become like Jesus. Pursue that with everything that you have and you'll find grace upon grace along the way. Pray with me if you would. Our God and Father, we thank you for Christ, for a Christ who is over all, for a Christ who is all. Father, I pray that you will help us as those who have been called by your word, those who have been covered by your grace and mercy. I pray that you will help us to put our past to death, to cast off anything that hinders. Fix our minds on that which is above, not on earthly things. Let it go, let it die. Give us your grace. Apart from your grace, we are hopeless. We can do nothing. God, I pray that you would help us where we are weak. God, there are people in this room today who desire to be more like Jesus, but feel it's a hopeless climb. May you remind them this morning that your grace is sufficient for me. That your power is perfected in my weakness. I don't have to have it all together. I just have to have you. God, strengthen us by your word. Empower us to help one another in our journey. May we be killing our own sin and may we be helping others kill it in their own lives. 
God, may you shape Trinity Church into a people that is like Jesus. May we be satisfied with nothing less. And may you transform our relationships with each other, our relationships with our enemies, our relationships with our friends, our relationships with a watching world. May we set a pattern for this new people, for this new people of God that you are building, you are shaping, you are forming. May we be a beacon that shows it to the world and may they desire the hope that we have. God, be glorified in and through us this morning. I pray in Christ's name and for the sake of his glorious kingdom. Amen.